Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, the show where we talk about all things fitness, nutrition, training, and sport-related. I'm Molly Herford, and today's guests I'm super excited about. That's why we had to bring you this bonus episode for Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, We know the weekends, this whole holiday can be a little tough, whether it's that it's hard to get out to train or it's tempting to kind of go a little overboard with the food and the booze and all that fun stuff. Uh, So if you need that extra dose of motivation, today's guests are pretty perfect for that. Uh, Those of you who've been following the Athletic Bookworms over on the Outdoor Edit have heard me talk at length about the book The Brave Athlete. So today we have its authors, Dr. Simon Marshall and his lovely, race-winning, amazing, ex-Terra champion of a wife, Leslie Patterson, on to talk all about their book, How to Be a Better Athlete, How to Make Habits Instead of Goals how to just completely change how you think about yourself as an athlete. It is an amazing episode. Uh, I'm super excited about it. I will warn everyone that the sound, we had some issues with the sound and our phones kept dropping, so it's a little bit on and off, Uh, but I think you will still get a ton out of it anyway. 95% of it is perfectly clear. It's gonna be an amazing episode. I'm so excited you guys get to listen to this right around the holidays, right when we're getting into that crazy season, and right when we're starting to think about the dreaded New Year's resolution time, which as endurance athletes that, you know, train all year, it can be a little tough, I think, to avoid the New Year's resolution. Oh my gosh, I need to set a bunch of new things right now, and they need to be big goals, and it needs to go so far out of my comfort zone. Uh, So let's get a little bit of... uh, you know, rationality from these two amazing people. So without further ado, I give you Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson talking about their amazing book, The Brave Athlete. Uh, Check out theconsummateathlete.com for all the links to their book and all the other books we've talked about all season. Now that we're into the holiday gift giving mode, we're going to have a consummate athlete gift guide up as well. So take a look for that. But in the meantime, let's get right in. All right, Consummate Athlete Podcast back today with the Brave Athlete Duo, uh, Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. Uh, So I could list off all of your palmares, but they're quite lengthy. So I think I'm going to let you guys do kind of brief bios of uh, the two of you. So Leslie, if you want to go first. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I've been in uh, the sport of triathlon for some, gosh, 25 years now, which is outrageous. Um, wow. But, so, you know, I really am truly crazy by now. Um, but I started, you know, my first sport was in rugby and uh, and then had to find something equally as challenging when I was no lo- longer allowed to play with boys because I was in an all-boys <laughs> team. And uh, yeah, so my, my dad promptly found something to keep me uh, occupied so I didn't get into trouble. And that was that was triathlon. So that was in the in the sort of early 90s. And uh, uh, got into the sport really seriously, actually, very quickly and got on the national team um, at a young age and uh, had huge aspirations. I mean, I'd always wanted to go to the Olympics from like the age of four. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I was just born with it. So that was my big goal. But I was never a quick enough swimmer to, to do the whole ITU format style of racing and then got very disillusioned with the sport. A lot of my coaches were sports, uh, sports scientists and physiologists and a lot of the way that they coached was very much about the data and not about how to actually uh, talk to athletes as people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, from a standpoint, 
I just got totally disillusioned. You know, uh, they, 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 you know, my data wasn't that good. They told me I wasn't that good. It was all about what I wasn't doing and how good I wasn't going to be. Uh, and and I just felt like it 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 wasn't me anymore. I wasn't doing it because I loved it. I was doing it for so many other reasons. And so gave the sport up when I was twenty, um, and then uh, it went into acting and drama and kind of re-nourished my soul and find out who I kind of really was and and what I loved to do and came back to the sport by way of Xterra, which pretty much is rugby plus you know triathlon equals Xterra. so totally. uh, yeah it totally was at home and and then got into Xterra and, and did uh, obviously you know I've kind of had a great career in that and uh, just love the sport and the people and the ethos and bit by bit kind of learned uh, through my drama work actually how to best manipulate my brain and so I would come home every day from training and and uh, speak to Sai about, hey, listen, I'm trying this and I'm trying that. What do you think of it? And he would, obviously, you'll hear about his background in a moment uh, as a psychologist, but he would uh, explain the science to me of that. And thus, you know, kind of that's how we built the book. But I'll let him give give his little precy of who he is and where he's from. However, I, I will just say that she's explained her entire career without one reference to her husband, that's which right. is despicable. <laughs> like, I, I, I I was was waiting for phrases and then I met Simon and it was a pivotal point in my athletic career. Yeah, it was a pivotal point. I met him and gave it up. (laughs) (laughs) Wah, wah. You believe that? Wah, wah. Um, So I I was a cyclist. I still am, but I was a competitive cyclist. That's how I met Leslie. Um, She was one of the few triathletes who used to come out on on some of our men's road team uh, rides. Wait, wait. You let a triathlete out on road rides? Uh, well, there, there, she was the only one that was finally allowed to to stay with the with with us because uh, one, she was super cute, but mainly because she could handle herself. She'd grown up cycling with the Falkirk Bike Club, and if you've ever what that means in real terms language, a bunch of hard men, and they wouldn't take shit from anybody. So she learned the ropes of how to give as good as she gets. So we all kind of she became our like little uh, a wee pal for all of us. Yeah, a mascot. <laughs> I love it. I had sort of a similar thing uh, on Rutgers cycling, a much lower level of competition, but I was a triathlete riding with the guys cycling team. And it took a while before they like kind of learned to put up with me. So Yeah, they do, right? Yeah. They, you see tri-bars and you just like ride the other opposite direction. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I was studying, I was uh, doing my PhD in sport and exercise psychology. And so we were, and I was in a, and the reason we were, we're at the, we were at the same university because Leslie was also going to, to school there. And I was in the sports science department with all the physiologists and the bean counters who Leslie was railing about. And I didn't know when to actually bring this up to her, that I was actually part of this crowd that she hated so much. And so, <laughs> but, but what was interesting is that I was also getting uh, frustrated with the field of sports psychology just because when you use the techniques and tools that you're taught through university courses, there it's very much a textbook uh, um, sort of discipline the way it was then. So you, when you try to talk to real people and they kind of their eyes rolled back in their heads at you, or they just thought what you were saying, or how you know they didn't really train you how to deal with real humans. So that's why we bonded on that. You know, her experience with getting a bit disenfranchised with the sport, and mine being frustrated about needing more uh, 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 strategies and techniques that actually work that real athletes would buy into. Um, and out of that uh, came a marriage. 
Aww. <laughs> and I really believe it. Marriage, coaching business, book. I know, right? So uh, it, it sounds like you were so you were sort of disenfranchised with sports psychology, but then Leslie was more like just traditional coaching, sort of looking at wattage only. Right. Yeah, pr- pretty much. And I think we both just kind of had this love-hate relationship with sports. You know, it's been such a huge part of our lives, but at the same time, we know the kind of dysfunction that it can develop in people. Uh, you know, we, we, we both had high aspirations in our in our equal fields and didn't we hadn't really forged our own path. Let's put it like that. And I think that, you know, you, you kind of grow up, especially in the UK, and you... you, you, you you're made to believe that there's one path only and that you have to do things a certain way, otherwise you're not going to get there. And and I think actually moving to, to the US for us was a huge uh, jump in how we approach things in so much as it's a lot more entrepreneurial, a lot more open-minded. And so we realized that there's actually many different ways to get to the same place um, and we just needed to find our own ways. I love that. Uh, so then, how did the book come to be? I guess, like I, I know that's kind of fast forwarding a few years, yeah. but you know, you guys have established this coaching business. Leslie's back racing Xterra, crushing it. Now you guys are going to tackle writing yeah. a very extensive, you know, lengthy, <laughs> intense book. And having yeah. written a few books, I know how much time and mental energy that takes. Well, I think for us, the, the book started from our athletes. So we'd get these questions over and over again or themes that would appear in things that athletes would ask us that went beyond the sort of the traditional exercise prescription component, you know, beyond the training peaks accounts and beyond the intervals and drills and, 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 and so on. So, And we would get uh, questions about – we've had these questions that we got became the chapter headings of the book – and one of the one of the big criticisms I have of the sports psychology world or the literature or the self-help stuff at the moment, or then anyway, uh, was that it was all technique driven. So it was like, there's books on stress management, there are books on like imagery or visualization, and, and none of these things really met the athlete where they were at. Um, they weren't actually framed in the way that real athletes uh, talked about the problems they were having. They didn't say, you know, like we've talked about this in the book, they, they didn't say I need more emotional resilience for a half marathon. They say I need to harden the fuck up. You know, how do I mm-hmm. stop quitting? And so so we wanted to meet them where they were at. So what we did is we took, we dis- we sat down and thought about the most common things that athletes or issues that they present to us. And we, we sort of prioritized. Shoot. Hello, hello. That became the, the genesis of it, and then we started to we start each chapter with a little example of what this looks like in real athlete world. So what mm-hmm. an athlete thinks to us, they think and feel, and with quotes from from actually real athletes, our people. Uh, we've changed their names, obviously. Um, uh, so, and then we just unpack the psychology of each issue and what techniques that can be done about it. And we finish each chapter with a case study. And this is what we've actually done with this person who had this issue. And so it might have some relevance to you. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I have to ask, as sort of a, a writing nerd here, how was the writing process of writing this together? <laughs> Yeah, it was great for me. He did most of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, pretty much. I would go out and train, and he would like, you know, he would like just write away, write, 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 and then uh, come home and then show me what he'd done, and then we'd kind of rework things, and I'd come up with some examples. I'd talk about, you know, 
what uh, what I'd worked through as an athlete and together we'd kind of come up with you know bits he was stuck at but you know Simon's background obviously sort of in academia he's one you know published a lot so he knows how to delve into research but two he, he loves to write I mean that's his passion so you know that combination with my kind of like experiential knowledge really worked together well to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it definitely came through really, really well. I liked it was such a good kind of combination of practical stuff and then the science within it because I find books tend to kind of go one way or the other. Um, yeah. Where it's like all science or then like all just kind of like, here's what I've found that worked for me or like me plus yeah, one other yeah. person. So yeah. this was yeah. such a good combination of the two. And I think it is hard to do well. I think we managed it because it was both of us. Because if it was just left up to me, I'd probably go down the science rabbit hole. And if it was up to Leslie, she'd go down the anecdotal rabbit hole. So we wanted to be a little bit reverent. We, I think also having real-world examples of actual people that tried this stuff. And Leslie's in the book many times because a lot of the techniques came from things that she does. Mm-hmm. You guys now have so much of your lives overlapping between book, coaching, you know, occasionally training together. Do you have any tips for handling that? Uh, Hey, is this a window to your soul here? (laughs) So, okay, Molly, here's what you need to do. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, yeah. Give me some tips. I think what's most important is we both... um, you know, I think the most important thing is is knowing your strengths and weaknesses and, you know, what the strengths and weaknesses of your partner are and when you can both get into trouble kind of together about certain things. So there's certain things that we won't do together because we just know it doesn't work. And then for the most part, like, and, and that's, we, we don't actually train together much. It doesn't work that great. Um, you know, I, I'm just a different person when I'm training, everything's very structured, I'm very serious about it. And for Simon, it's very much a hobby. So it's, you know, we just kind of cross in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's certain things like that, that we know that, 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 that just don't work. But when it comes to the business, you know, we have very distinct roles, uh, that we play in our business and, and, and we both respect each other's abilities to do those roles. So neither of us are micromanagers. We just kind of know what we're good at and we're happy with the other one doing what they're good at, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I love that. Simon, anything to add on? <laughs> I think, no, those things exactly. I mean, it's, it's recognizing that not neither of you can be everything to the other person, both personally, professionally, and so on, and recognizing that you know, you each have, we're lucky in the sense that a uh, few of our skills are overlapping um, so that we kind of, just, a lot of the stuff that Leslie does is I don't, it's not in my skill set um, and the stuff I do, vice versa. But if we both sort of had, we both thought we knew better in each situation, that might be more, you know, grounds for some conflict. But, and, and I think even the, in terms of the training, once, you know, one of the strategies that we talked about is this alter ego concept. And when, once I sort of got the hang of Leslie being a, actually a different person when she trained and competed, it became easier to, to kind of handle her because you, in, a, in the sense, but that you don't get so emotionally invested in, in, in conflict or you don't get in argument because you know that, you know, it's like her trying to come to work with me and whatever. So it, it just doesn't, that didn't, but that became easier in recognizing that. Yeah. 
I loved actually that whole bit about the athletic alter ego. Um, Leslie, I kind of want you to talk a little bit about that. Is that kind of developed partially due to your acting background or how did you kind of come up with that? Uh, the alter ego stuff definitely came from my acting background. I think it's one of those things where as a person, you know, I, I'm not one of those kind of overly confident, brash, you know, you know, sort of push down anyone, trip over anyone. That's kind of not really who I am. And so, um, you know, as I was entering races, I became quite a nervous Nelly and could never really get the best out of myself. And so I started looking at, you know, other, you know, actors and people and, and whatnot around me that had those attributes. And I love film. I mean, that's kind of what I studied in my, in my graduate studies. And so, you know, I love things like Braveheart and Gladiator and, you know, all those kinds of films. And I love the characters in them. And I started to watch those the night before films to try and get inspired. And then bit by bit I would take the the attributes of those characters, how they moved, how they looked, uh, you know, even to a certain extent, you know, how they sort of would put on their costume and, and that would reflect how I would put on my costume and so started to, you know, sort of bring about elements like that and, uh, you know, my alter ego is, uh, is uh, called Paddy McGinty and Paddy is mm -hmm. an Irish MMA fighter so I started to watch a lot of MMA fighting uh, sort of aka you know Conor McGregor type deal um, and yeah you know it's just really really helped me get into the right headset or, or mind frame to to really get the best out of myself in racing and training. I love that I also love Conor McGregor just throwing yep. that out there. <laughs> well so, you know the thing about it is is he, he's a cocky bastard but at the same mm -hmm. time you respect his you know and, and again he might be playing an alter ego but it, it's just I mean, I, I kind of, you know, and to a certain extent, right, you know, Lance Armstrong aside, you know, in terms of all of the crap that, and baggage that comes with him, you know, the focus and the determination and the, and the type of mindset that he had to be as good as he was, regardless of all of that, w was kind of inspirational. So there's lots of different characters and actors and people that you can draw upon to to get where you need to get to for, for race day and during a race, you know? Absolutely. And so, so, so this is a technique then that people could use, you know, if they were very timid on a mountain bike or, you know, very timid exactly. in racing, you know, you'd, you'd create this alter right. identity, you know, and the, the idea is that that changes your mindset. Yeah, I, th I think the interesting thing that in, in psychology anyway, that thinking of yourself in the third person is, is pretty powerful therapeutically as well. In fact, lots of psychotherapists actually use that strategy to elicit different responses and to separate a, a process called attachment where you're you're trying to separate your thoughts from your feelings and you're trying to do it fairly dispassionately so that you can objectively see things that you can't do when you're in your own head so so it, it, it we know that it has a, a good uh, therapeutic benefit but it's only fairly recently and i'm talking about in the last five years when some of the neuroscience research methods caught up so that we could actually study what happens in the brain when you assume, uh, when you, they call it embodied cognition. It's really you're, you're taking on the characteristics or the thoughts of, or the behaviors of somebody else. We know, for example, is that when you assume certain behaviors, you get a, 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 a sort of a, a knock-on biochemical change in your brain. So, for example, when you, and the, one of the examples that's studied most frequently is like the power pose when you're standing like Superman or Wonder Woman, you know, shoulder width apart, 
feet shoulder width apart, head up, uh, chest out, chin up, uh, hands on your hips and so on. And then if you do this for two to three minutes, you actually get changes, cortisol changes, testosterone changes, uh, uh, serotonin changes, dopamine changes in the brain. And all these things are associated with having a different thinking and feeling, pattern of thinking and feeling. So we know that we can cheat biology in many ways because Recently, we always thought that the model that psychologists has was that it was a trickle-down effect of thoughts influence feelings, influence behavior. It's a top-down. So that's why most psychotherapy or psychology starts with changing people's cognition or thinking, and that ultimately changes how you feel and you'll act or, or do things differently. But we now know you can reverse engineer that process because we've stuck. We can study it in real time in the brain. So when you fake a behavior, faking it till you're making it, you're actually inciting changes, neurohormonal changes that are going to lead to different cognition and lead to different affect or emotion. So, so it's really important to use that if you feel thoroughly overwhelmed or you just think that, you know, that someone, what you need to be for this role is just not within you. And it can, it, yes, it can be sport, but it can also be anything like public speaking or, you know, you have, you have some social anxiety or you just feel a bit introverted and in what you're being asked to do, manage people or talk, you, it, it, uh, it gives you some anxiety. So you can fake it by assuming the characteristics of someone who you can think of or, or a character you can think of that doesn't have those things. And the head comes around and it's quite remarkable how that happens. And we're, we're convinced on it on a, daily basis by going to movies that's what films are that's what film acting is it's an embodiment of a different person and you genuinely good acting anyway you genuinely believe that that person is that character and critically and you talk to some actors about this they believe for a moment that they're that character so it's quite a powerful strategy that athletes can use and it's quite quick and and easy to do particularly if you think oh my god i can't face five years of psychotherapy you know to help me overcome this issue i've got we're just fucking fake it and then see how that works out. <laughs> I love it. I think I might develop multiple personalities out of this. So I'm a little worried yeah. now. I'm like, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. yeah. Personality disorder. You want to be careful who you admit that one to. <laughs> so is there a possible, a possible issue around like internal, external attribution with that technique? Yeah. Well, that, that's a good point. Oh, look at a great question. I love it. We're getting nerdy now. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the one of the things to be concerned about, well, I mean, not for that specific example, but generally, is that when you assume the 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 character of someone else, is that to what extent are you? Do you feel therefore responsible, accountable for your actions? So does it give someone license to be an asshole, right? And say, <laughs> oh, it wasn't me, just this other person. Or so obviously, what we're doing is we're recommending this strategy for for athletes who you know, or the the run of the mill folks who are ostensibly mentally healthy, who have capacity of you know, uh, decision making and social conscience and good moral judgment, uh, and they don't have mental disorders or mental health issues that would may lead this, you know, it could spiral out of control. So I think we have to be a little bit sort of, um, uh, uh, not flippant's the wrong word, but we have to be a little bit sort of uh, uh, cautious about what, you know, how deep we're actually assuming this character. Because at the end of the day, it's helping people deal with a, a stressful situation, not as a justification for morally questionable decisions, right? Yeah. Right. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah. Don't don't take anybody out on the bike just because your alter ego is highly competitive. Exactly. Yeah, I guess that would be an example like you're just overly aggressive maybe, but Yeah. yeah. And I mean I have to have a, a, a like a period of time where I become Leslie again. So, you know, there's certain things that, that I do, you know, in terms of my transition from Paddy back to Leslie, right? 
and uh, you know I allow myself the time to do that so I think it's important to have that caveat as well um, you know and, and explain to the people that you either train with or that are around you that you know hey during my workout this is kind of the way I am make light of it and have a joke about it in the zone so you know there's there's a myriad of ways to kind of transition back to use a person and uh, it's important to have those in place so that you don't totally fucking piss people off around you <laughs> well, totally. you know, we've got this funny story so we did a talk in in uh, new york or something and there was a, a top ironman pro gal there we won't name her but she's a really lovely gal and she said to after we'd done our the talk and leslie had been explaining about her alter ego she said she kept saying you know what i always thought that you were a kind of a bitch when i saw you at races <laughs> And, and in fact, a lot of people have thought that about Leslie. Yeah, if they see her training or, you know, she she's a coach as well as an athlete. And if your athletes are out training with you, they always see you as coach, right? Not as an athlete. And so they want to – but you're trying to do your own workout. And so sometimes if you have to, you know, be a little bit more focused or, you know, whatever, not not play that role and fight against it, you can come across as a bit dispassionate and cold. And But that's what Leslie has to do to get into the mindset needed to do the training and the racing. But it's only when she said, well, that's actually not me, that she said, oh, because you seem so different than when I see your races. You look genuinely scary and intimidating. Perfect. <laughs> so I guess those transition periods, are like that's sort of your pre-performance routine and getting warmed up and then cooling yep. down on the, on the other side of that competition. Exactly. You know, putting, putting on my kit, you know, having a couple of uh, stimulus like that, you know, for me often after a long training day, I'll have a short drive back to the house, and that's almost like my transition time, right, just to come back. Because if you, certainly as a pro athlete, if you've just spent five or six hours during the day essentially being paddy, <laughs> then, you know, it takes, it takes, and then you're hungry and tired after that day. It takes a bit just to kind of come off of that. You know, it's not like you walk in the door and everything's rosies and, hi, honey, I'm home, and blah, blah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you're tired, you're grumpy, and you're still kind of in the zone. So you got to come out of that and just become Leslie the person again. I think that makes a lot of sense. I remember actually a guy I was training with uh, in California a couple of years ago sort of said he would turn his music off, you know, and just sort of really back off the pedals for the last five or ten minutes, which is really just a cool down. But just coming back through the city so that, like, when he got into the house, he wouldn't start screaming at people or, like, overreact or whatever, right? And right, right. I think... We forget that sometimes. Exactly. I think that's really what we're talking about. You know, with, with this alter ego, you're, 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 you're having behaviors or attitudes, but you're inciting a different emotive um, uh, level, right? So you're creating heightened emotions. And so that's really the same thing is that we're just kind of labeling it and giving it a little bit, a few more sort of characteristics to make it a person. Um, but that's really what you're doing. You're just, it's a strategy to regulate emotion both up and back down when you transition back to the real you. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Like, I mean, when you're trying to describe, you know, optimal performance state or arousal level to someone, it's, it's really vague, right? And so this, I think, is, you know, you could get someone to, you know, draw a picture of, of this character or, you know, visualize yeah. or write a description, which is in the book is Leslie's description. I think that makes a, that's a way more practical as much as it's sort of crazy and kooky. You well, know. and one of the best one of the best things is, you know, almost like a collage, right? Like you're doing a project. Um, you know, I'll watch videos. I'll have uh, uh, inspirational videos or character videos that I watch before I go and do certain workouts or races or whatnot because I think visually that's a really good stimulus. 
pictures, videos, all that kind of stuff really get you in that moment, get you in that zone. So there's a myriad of things that you can do. And even like what I've noticed if I'm in a big competition and there's, you know, there's cameras around or even during the race, if I've got a motorbike with me, uh, which is quite often the case in Xterra, they, they video a lot of stuff. Um, you know, you have to kind of stay in the moment of I'm in a competition, I'm, you know, I'm in the lead, whatever it might be. And yet you've got this camera in your face, you know, so I'll have little behaviors that I do that just kind of get me back into it. One of them is like clenching my fists or one of them is blinking and looking or looking a certain way. And there's certain little stimulus like that that just get me back into that character if I feel myself getting pulled out of it. Mm-hmm. I like that. And this, and this notion actually extends beyond... Um, you know, sport. In fact, we, we talk about it didn't come from sport. We've introduced it in sport. But like even some of the studies, the new studies show that it works for creativity as well. And they've done, uh, you know, trials where they've asked people to assume characteristics of someone who's creative and they've measured their actual creativity and it increases above and beyond what they can creatively output without this um, sort of artifact. So it's that there is something there, certainly. And we think that it's partly biochemistry. We think it might be just sort of, it might be um, the fact that, you know, you're able to modify or incite, draw on emotions that are kind of dormant in you or quiet in you or whatever. But there's certainly something there. And when you see it happening across multiple domains, like we see it in creativity, we see it in academic achievement, we see it in, in, in arts, we see it in sport now, I think that they lend some credence to it, that it isn't just kind of dress up make-believe. Yeah, I think it's funny you said that because it just reminded me when I was in high school and in college, whenever I needed to study, I don't need glasses at all, but I would have a pair of like clear glass glasses that I would put on. Oh, that's awesome. And that's that's like, it's the study time. Like that's when I'm like serious business. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) that's so great. And that's why, you know, we, we always urge, especially, especially people with busy schedules, you know, you know, really partition off your time when it comes to exercise. Don't just, you know, don't just kind of try and do the trainer workout in the middle of the living room with the, the, the kids around and, you know, people shouting at you and yelling at you and all that kind of stuff. Really partition that off so that you're making that transition into this is you, you as an athlete you know, which is different than you as a father or you as a business person, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one thing I really loved in the book was actually the, the chapter on uh, setting goals is not your problem. And I <laughs> feel like goal setting is such a huge, like that's all we ever hear about when it comes to sports psych. So I'd love to hear why you guys picked that as one of kind of the key points in the book. Yeah, well, I think that was also our, our or what, now talking with a sports psychology how, and that was one of my frustrations as well, is that, you know, we're not just in the, tr- how we're trained or how coaches, coach education, it's like with the, the hallowed, you know, the haloed acronym of smarter goals, and we go through with athletes how to set smarter goals, and, 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 and honestly, I've not met a single athlete who doesn't know what a goal is or how to set it. Okay, you can, tw- you're tweaking it or helping them make them more realistic and elements of it, but the fundamental attributes, I mean, the human brain is goal-oriented. That's what the brain is wired for, a whole host of reasons why. So it's not necessarily a skill or technique that you have to kind of train people to do. You're honing it, maybe. But the issue that we found, and okay, admittedly, there's a bit of a selection bias here with athletes, uh, with endurance athletes, and also athletes who are then looking for coaches or want to be coached. Um, but there's a sense that, you know, it's, it's the doing part that's the challenge. It's not sort of intellectualizing the issue about what I want to achieve by when and how. It's actually 
converting all that stuff into action. And I think for us, it's most of the problems that on the face of it looked like goal problems were actually habit formation problems. So we were trying to turn something that they knew intellectually what they needed to do or when or, or what they wanted to do. But then how do we turn that into a behavioral habit that, that is robust to getting you know, knocked off course by other things that, you know, in people's lives that, that derail training and so on? And then how do you kind of, you know, file it and forget it, but still get up each morning and do it without having to think too much about it? And, and fortunately, we've learned quite a lot now about sort of the neurological loop required to actually create those habits and break bad ones. And so what we've done is we've looked at some of the scientific research and sort of tried to distill it down uh, into actionable things that athletes can do uh, for, for habits that they're trying to break, uh, build or break. And, and a lot of the things that, again, we found was that, you know, if it's a question of, um, you know, I, I tend to quit uh, or I don't like to leave my comfort zone or I get the, the you know, the sugar munches at seven o'clock at night or whatever it happens or I can't get up for master swim or whatever it happens to be that you can turn you can think of this as a behavioral habit issue that we're trying to turn so that we into so, sort of an more of an automatic process so we don't have to agonize over it and let's and try and make be a battle of willpower or self-control I love that let's get back to the sugar munchies at 7 p.m. for example just you know <laughs> as like a random one that no one yeah. here has a problem with how would you suggest starting to break that habit <laughs> yeah well listen I've got that we've all had that habit <laughs> I, I, I still periodically struggle with it my, my one of mine is red vines I've got to stay away away from the dangers of red vines <laughs> so you know yeah the, the essence of this is that um, you know, when you look at, particularly if it's binging at night uh, on the good stuff, fat, sugar, or, or what have you, or salt, um, that most of our habits, bad ones included, follow the, a very similar pattern. In fact, the same pattern. And if you're trying to undo that pattern, you have to know what the loop is and how it's built. And so what we now know from some of the science is that habits are built on a, on a, on a sort of a, have three, three, uh, three legs to the stool. The first is it has to have a trigger. This is the starting pistol of the habit that you've got. And so some of this is an internal state like boredom. Uh, 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 others, it's an external thing like, you know, you get home and you see the bottle packet of whatever it is that you're trying to avoid. So it triggers, it, it, it sets off a cascade of thoughts and feelings that, you, that drive you to want it. An actual fact in neuroscience now, just the thinking about something that you want creates a spike in dopamine. And dopamine is your brain's pleasure juice. And whenever you get a spike of dopamine, it, it drives you further along the ladder or climbs the ladder of wanting to actually and then eventually end up doing it. So just thinking about something makes it even harder to resist. So one of the first things that we look for is how can we change the architecture of triggers in your life? And it might be that you do have to get rid of these sorts of things or hide them. And the one that Leslie has, because she has a, 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 a craving for nut butter, so it's cashew butter, or, and she will literally get a nose bag on like oh, a racehorse and fucking horse down an entire jar in one sitting easily. And she knows that she's like this. So, so her trigger strategy is I we go through this rigmarole of me hiding the peanut butter like three times a week 
And uh, and then she tell eventually oh, she's done three days without it and she wants a bit more. So she'll ask me where I've hidden it and I'll, I'll show her and then I'll hide it again. And But it's a way of controlling the triggers so that you can't actually get into the routines. That's the first thing. Know thy trigger. Um, the second thing is looking at the routine or the ritual that you go through to actually do the behavior. So it might be that, for example, if, if for me it's the uh, red vines or the second glass, <laughs> the first glass is never the problem, it's the second, um, is that you, you, know, you recognize that if you sit down in front of the TV, you kick off your shoes, you get engrossed in something and you drink a glass of wine or you start, you know, um, or you can't find something to watch. And then you find yourself thinking that, okay, I, uh, I'm going to go through my little routine and I check you know, all four cupboards, you, it's almost like, you know, you've got some sort of OCD, you look at the cupboard, you know what's in there, because you've stocked it in the refrigerator, you open it again, you're looking again, if there's anything that you fancy. And if that's the routine that you have, uh, clearly, if you can change that. So one of the things is to, is to almost like, you know, if you've ever redecorated uh, your house, or you've rearranged furniture, or just moved your bed to a different position, it changes how you feel about that room. Uh, for good reason, because we become habituated to our environment. A lot of our actions are really led by how our environment is structured. So that you can uh, manipulate this by changing your physical environment. So that's not just a mani manipulating the trigger, but you're forcing to disrupt the routine that leads to the actual bad habit. So you have to do things in a different order uh, or so on. Or it might be that if the trigger is you've put all this stuff downstairs in the garage or something or out in the car or at the in the shed, you know that the routine is that I have to now walk down there to get it. It's a little, there's a few more barriers to doing it. So really focusing on that routine is important. And then the final piece is the reward. There's a payoff for all of these habits. And, you know, for, sh for sugar and fat, it's not only tastes good, it makes our brain chemistry change, dopamine spikes and so on. So this feels good. But other, it can be a set sense of satisfaction from, you know, if you get a workout done early in the morning and you can feel a bit smug for the rest of the day and that's the payoff. So all of our habits and routines have at their core a trigger, a routine, and a reward. And some habits have a stronger reward, some have a stronger trigger, some have a stronger routine, and some are just equally strong in all three. So you have to be really dissect the habit that you have and, and break it down into these three elements and then intervene on each of the elements so that you can so that you can change it so an example non-sport related is for example drinking a lot of people struggle with cutting down drinking um uh, so one thing is if you you know after a, a one beer or one glass of wine and how you stop going on to the second one is you you switch to fizzy water and for some reason drinking fizzy water uh, is very different than just you know chewing on on a, on a carrot or having plain water as a substitution and maybe it's because of the carbonation maybe if it's in a little bottle you have to keep opening and closing there's like something who knows why those things are but for some reason it's able it's a really effective strategy for helping people cut down on oral behaviors you know eating and and, and drinking so um, anything that you can find and that would be disrupting that would be changing the ritual the routine part um, you're not if you find that that's good enough in other words you can get through that habit or you can break it by doing something like that you know it's not the reward that's the problem it's the it's the routine so for example you there's no reason why you should get a buzz from drinking fizzy water and that you thought there was was the reward from the alcohol it might just be out of boredom that you like to have something in your hand and you're sipping away and you're feeling good you're watching something or what have you so that knowing that loop is can be really helpful to help break those habits
I think that's great. Yeah, we've had good luck. You know, not that we, but we're all trying to reduce alcohol and just moderate that. But definitely, you know, having some good teas, hot teas, cold teas. Kombucha has been really good. It's got a bit of that fizzy sort of even beer tasting. So I know we do that. So if, you know, if it isn't a cost saving thing, kombucha versus wine is probably Definitely not a cost savings thing. No, right? Oh, God, I know. It's really interesting, actually. One strategy as well. It sounds kind of random, but totally changing your cupboards around. Oh, I like that. So you have to kind of shuffle around and like, think about like it in terms second. of putting like the wine and the tasty treats up really high, or what? What do you mean, just in general switching? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah, you just get used to the same pattern of behavior. You know, mine is I stay on one side of the couch, size stays on the other. We watch a TV program. I get up, I go over to the same cupboard, and I get the little thing. I look in it. I want to get it out. I don't get it out. I go back to the couch. I get back up. I go back to the you know. And there's all these stupid little habits that we have, and it's amazing actually. Would we in uh, Lanzarote right now, but. You really don't get any of those habits when you're staying in a different place. Yeah. Ugh, I think we're so used to traveling that like my bad habits will adapt to any place <laughs> that we are. Like, no, but I mean, we would go like a month if we're staying with juniors or something too, where you know there isn't that habit of alcohol. You're, you know, you're, you know, it's, the day just ends later, right? Like sometimes just the day is so long you don't have time for that. You have to go to bed, right? No, but there's still like Reese's peanut butter cups in my sock drawer at that point. I guess Molly's that's a little, right. that, Molly's that's a little your more. Tr- that's your trigger, then Molly. You have to, you have to change the triggers. Get those things out of there. Yeah, no more sock drawers. Oh, yeah. I just can't have socks now. Yeah, no more socks. I know it's funny because when Leslie, when she goes on her peanut butter craze, she also, she all. In that we've got a kind of a, I don't know, our kitchen is sort of a little U shape, and she'll stand in the corner with her back to the rest of the rest of the sort of open plan kitchen and face the cupboards, and she'll stand there almost like she's on the naughty step, so she knows that she shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, but this is this little ritual in this little protected corner, you can't really see what you're doing, and so just simply changing where you eat something can be really important. Right. So and I think that, that that's partly the, uh, the that's then the routine. Right. Some people, they overeat if they're sat, if they're if they're eating on their lap versus on the eating at the table. Right. So or, or or changing it up where you eat. Uh, so I think some of those things can be really helpful. And it's just a simple manipulation of, of the of the routine. Yeah, like eating, you know, not secretive, which I also do the same thing, the secret, like in the corner of the kitchen. Um but yeah, in the you know, with your family at the table, not in front of the TV, are sort of common ones, I guess. Well, and the the, the interesting thing of the psychology of eating is a whole you know different, whole well-researched topic. But one of the things that we know leads to overeating is when you get competing stimuli during eating. So, so for example, you eat more when you listen to music. You eat more when you watch the television. You, you eat more when you eat around other people, and it's served family style. So what you can do. So one of the uh, the strategies they use in mindfulness eating to help people overeat is to is to eat in silence and it might seem the, the, the dullest thing in the world but it, what it's doing is it's forcing you to pay more attention to each bite and how much you're consuming um, and many of us are distracted you know we're eating while we're on the phone or eating watching tv and that's contributing to the problem of overeating yeah that makes a lot of sense um, I wanted to transition. I, I have been through the book, and I know a few of my clients. I'm a I coach cyclists, mostly mountain bikers as well, and I know a few clients have found it either through Molly's book club idea or just on their own. They've found the book and are really into the idea of um, just the, the whole idea, the brave athlete concept. Um, but I think the one that a lot of them are sort of, you know, really enjoying is the idea of the identity 
uh, and the stories we tell ourselves. So things like, um, you know, I need to always pull over because people, I don't want to slow people down or, you know, that's their main focus when they're racing even, let alone pre-riding or riding the trails. They don't want to slow people down. So that's like the worst mindset if you're trying to race your bicycle. You know, they're not thinking about not, you know, staying on the trail, hitting their line, you know, doing the best they can, pacing. They're thinking about not slowing other people down. Um, exactly. So, so I was wondering if you could think about or, or speak to the idea of sort of the stories we tell ourselves and, you know, maybe how we could start down the path of identifying and changing those. Well, so in the, in the, in the, in the, in the context of our athletic identity and our athletic identity is without sort of getting into the yourself as an, an athlete and as a partner and as a parent and all these things, but they all feed into your self-concept. And there's usually some commonalities among all of them. So it's very rare that someone is an absolute, you know, basket case in one and a shining star of mental fortitude and toughness in another. Because we're, it's all coming from the same flawed on your on your shoulders. So what we're trying to do is to understand the narrative, the stories we tell ourselves that give us a window to the thoughts and beliefs we have about ourselves. And, and, you know, this is why, you know, the best sports psychology isn't just about sport. It's really about, you know, your life in general, because these skills transfer to other aspects of your life where you can draw on other identities to help you in, in another. But it's really important to listen to athletes about how they describe themselves. And in this case, we'll talk about it as an athlete, because the words they use give you a little window to how strong that identity is. So when we have athletes who say, oh, I'm, ju- I'm just an age group athlete. You know, Leslie's obviously a top professional. I'm just an age group athlete. And, I, you know, I probably get in the way of people like you. But do you coach people who are slow? Or they're all, they're, The way that they're describing themselves is so laden with self-judgment already that it tells you a little bit about their identity. Yeah, so, you know, you know in, in, in the book, we talk about the chip brain and the professor brain and that represents a fight that's going on in everyone's head about what's important to survive and not be embarrassed and humiliated and what's to be logical and rational and and often the thoughts and beliefs people have about themselves their identity it reflects that fight going on and when you ask people to talk about themselves as athletes the words they use give you a little window into that fight and who's winning that fight so um you know i'm just uh, or i don't think i can or oh i'm do you coach athletes as slow as me and that kind of stuff it's a little window into that so what we often know, what we know is that if you can tackle and strengthen someone's athletic identity, and you can think of this as taking, like taking ownership over where you're at and who you are as an athlete. So not making, for example, one of signs of a strong athletic identity is never, is never making, uh, uh, well, not never making, but trying to avoid making excuses for bad for results that you didn't go your way to owning what happened and taking personal responsibility that's that internal attribution for things that's really important and 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 in a, in a similar vein is that when you're around athletes who are fast or leaner or whatever better than you is to not excusing your performance and not say oh you know you don't wait for me i'll be here you know you're already but taking ownership of it and saying listen you can, you know, you can design sessions so that everyone can participate regardless of how fast you are. So never, ex- you know, trying to explain to people or apologizing for being slow. It's who is what you, where you're at, what you're doing, your training and so on. It, it is what it is and it'll improve if you stick with it. So what we try and do is we have people tell us their chimp talk because most of those negative 
thoughts and beliefs that you have about you come from your your chimp itself that a, a paranoid catastrophic emotionally reacting machine and we get people to write it down and have it unfiltered so unfiltered means that we don't get your professor brain the logical you explaining why it's silly to think this so i know i know i'm not actually like this but it's to just let it all out let, let me hear what that little voice inside you is actually saying and recognizing it's not actually the real you at all it's your limbic system, your chimp brain that's been there for millions of years. So don't worry about being embarrassed. You can think of it like a little character inside you because we all have one. And once you understand the brand of crazy that your chimp is telling you, it gives you immense uh, – you you're at a much better position to target strategies to remedy those things. So I think that's a really good starting point is to get in touch with your inner chimp and learn about what kinds of things it's so paranoid about protecting for you. I think that's great and that makes sense. So if someone was, you know, saying, you know, having trouble identifying themselves as a mountain biker or even just as an athlete, you know, they're they're an exerciser or they're overweight or they're slow, but they're not an athlete. They're not a mountain biker. Um, you know, that's that's what their chimp brain's saying. What what do they do? Like they they're they've written this down on paper. Is there a way? Like I mean, to me, it sort of lends itself to that faking it to making it concept, maybe. Absolutely. So you know, one thing to build a stronger identity is to actually do it. Right. You're assuming all of the behaviors of that person. So that's why you can't really think your way into being an athlete. Being an athlete, part of it is actually doing it. So we know that you can strengthen athletic identity by getting more engaged or involved in sport. And that doesn't just mean you're always racing. It might mean that you're trying to, you know, you're joining a club or you're volunteering at races or you're helping out. You're going to other things that make you be around other athletes. So actually, I kind of wanted to jump from the identifying as an athlete into the, uh, the other thing you guys talked about with the comparison trap. And... Leslie, I was wondering, is this something that you still deal with, even as a pro, where you find yourself comparing yourself to other athletes, or does it fade over time? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, Thank you, you know, all the time, especially with social media, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, there's just that constant comparison on. Uh, you know, you've got uh, other athletes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of known in the community, so there's always another uh, comment, when are you next racing, are you going to win, we're rooting for you, you know, all of those kind of comments that, that build up this expectation, and the expectation then leads to more comparison, you know, can I do this, can I fulfill others' expectations, and that's a, a kind of slippery slope. Um, so, for the most part, you know, I tend not to troll through the social media too much. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think I'm at the point in my career and in my life where I've, 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 I've really been at the bottom. I've been at the bottom of the well. And so, you know, in that regard, I kind of don't give a fucking. I'm just wondering, you know, you're in the elite level, and I, I can relate to that. I've raced mountain bikes and stuff. So it's one thing to look and see those comments. But I'm wondering for athletes that are having trouble with their identity then, you know, and they're posting every ride from Strava to the Facebook and, you know, looking for those comments of support and stuff. Like, do you ever monitor or, or suggest a different approach to social media and training? Definitely, definitely. So, um, you know, uh, Simon obviously does that more in terms of his one-on-one with athletes when they're having issues. 
but it's definitely a case of okay so uh, what's going to be more important for you right now is the way that you post for social media um, uh, to sort of um, embrace this new identity that you're becoming warts and all so that doesn't mean you know posting only stuff that makes you look good right which is what social media is all about that impression management it's actually about um, uh, posting the stuff where you don't look great or you've not had a good workout and sort of being real about your journey um, because the true way to becoming sort of uh, uh, building this identity as well as actu actually truthfulness uh, and finding an honesty in it. So that's how, you know, how we talk to athletes about actually their posting. And then when it comes to trolling through social media and you're really restricting the time and having a time frame when you do it in terms of never, never look on social media when you're feeling bad, when you've had a shitty workout, when you've had an argument with your partner or when you're just having a down day. That's when you have to kind of turn it off. Um, you know, only go on on the social media when you're actually feeling good and your ego can cope with what other people are throwing out there. Um, so there's definitely strategies to manage the use of social media. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then, I mean, kind of sticking with sort of your your trajectory right now, and you know, by the time this is airing, you'll have already you know, seeing how world championships go, but you recently had a, a little bit of a setback with an injury. How are you coping with that? Are you rereading chapters of the book and trying uh, to use all of the strategies? Yeah, or? Yeah. What was super interesting, you know, I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career, like immense ones. And to be honest, you know, over this summer, I've had bad crashes. I've had food poisoning. I've had eye infections. It's like one thing after the next. And, uh, you know, I keep coming back, um, you know, and I'd put in this great block of training and was feeling really good, raced well uh, at the Pan Am Champs for Xterra, um, uh, you know, a couple of weekends ago. And, uh, you know, was out doing a track workout and just probably got a bit greedy doing a couple of run workouts back to back. And literally from one 400 to the next, my groin did not feel good. And I stopped immediately, which in the past I would have tried to run through it. So I felt like, you know, hey, I've made a good decision. You know, surely it'll be okay. Well, by that night, it, I, you know, I was in agony. And then the next day I kind of I have the hookup. So I was able to get an MRI quickly and all that kind of stuff and find out that I've got a stress fracture in my pelvis. So I literally spent all of the, that day just, I mean, in tears. I mean, just bawling. Two days, not one day, no, two it was, days. No, it was one day. It was like, it was a night, it was <laughs> night, night it happened in the next day, and it was like my chimp purging. Anyways, okay, so the one thing that you control in your world is effort and attitude. Regardless of anything that's going on around you, if you have a positive effort and attitude and stay committed to that, success will, will follow. I love that. Simple, succinct. And yeah, I think the whole book kind of leads up to that. And I think it's awesome. So can you tell everybody where they can find the book? Yeah, you can get it uh, on our website, braveheartcoach.com um, and Velo, we uh, Velo, uh, uh, Velo Press website as well as Amazon. Perfect. And then where can, they where can everyone find you guys online? Yeah, our website, braveheartcoach.com. Uh, you can fill out one of our small tests about how your training's going and you'll get a phone call from me to chat through uh, your training with you. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. 
We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.